The sermon text this morning will be Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, we're on the uh, uh, precipice of another year. And uh, it's always interesting, you know, what people do with New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Is it a day, uh, you know, for some folks, they love New Year's resolutions. Um, it's an opportunity to kind of uh, to look back and reflect on all that God has done in you and, and to look forward, to recalibrate, to think through what this new year might, might bring. Others, they mock it because they just think New Year's resolutions, who follows them? I, I, I tend to like it, actually. I, I like it. it. I don't just do it on New Year's Eve, but I do it as a time to, to think back on what God has been for us and to us and what might be this coming year. We did that as a leadership team uh, the last month of last year, or this year, December. Um, we looked back at all that God had done in our church, how he has grown our church, not just with more people, uh, but the qualitative growth in the lives of many of you who have suffered and been faithful. Uh, God has done a lot in our church this year, you know, th this life is called the school of faith, and many have been good students in this school, learning a lot. We're also looking forward to next year. What do we want to do next year? How, how do we want to grow? I always ask you the question, do you love Christ more at the end of this year? When you, when you look back, do you love him more? I don't ask you that every week. It's like measuring your child, you know, how tall they are every week. It, it doesn't work, but from year to year, do you love them more? And it's an abstract question until you begin to think through it as you begin to consider, do I love his word more? Have I been joyfully sacrificing more? Have I been striving to be holier? You know, th these, these more practical questions. Am I longing for his return more? Am I striving to be more faithful in my marriage for his glory? These are the questions that would indicate a, a growing love. Do I, do I love to be in worship with his people? Or is it something I still feel compelled to do? So, so we want to grow in our love for God. And so uh, as an elder team, we spoke about uh, wanting to focus this year on prayer and fasting. These are two classic Christian disciplines, prayer and fasting. You know, in James, he says that you have not because you ask not. And so we want to be praying, but we also want to be fasting. Fasting is that abstention of food for a season of time for spiritual purposes, appealing to God for mercy. And, and so we want to do that through this year. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, over the next three weeks, we're going to preach on prayer today, fasting next week, to try to take some of the mystery out of it, and then, and then the third week, we'll speak about how prayer and fasting advance the church so that the world is ultimately changed by the influence of the church. And then what we're going to do is we're going to call each of you 
once a month, we pick the second Tuesday of each month, where we're going to, together as a church, we're going to fast and we're going to pray. And we're going to be sending you literature each month, the Sunday prior, just reminding you of the nature of prayer, reminding you of the purpose of fasting. And we're going to look at praying together as a church for the needs of this church. We want to grow in our love for God. We want to delight in God more. God is unfathomable to us, but glorious. And we are often so easily satisfied with the trinkets of this world that we want to love God's glory in greater measure. We want to love his word. We want to love to worship. We want to love to sing, to be together. We want to grow in our relationships with one another. That there's a transparency, a vulnerability, a willingness to sacrifice for one another. Uh, to break rank with, this is our, you know, this is kind of the inner ring in my life. That's what C.S. Lewis would call the inner ring, the important people. We're going to break out of that and we're going to move towards other people. And, and we're going to have a growing love for God's world. We have neighbors that know our lives. And we're often fearful about approaching them on the things of God. Not just globally, but also locally. How are we wanting his name to be honored? These things do come about through the preached word, and they come about through other means of grace. Uh, but, but scripture often calls us to prayer and fasting that God would be honored to move. And so every second Tuesday, we'll be giving you literature, both to deepen your understanding and also to give direction that we together will pray as a church for God to use us for his purposes and to grow us in holiness so that day that he returns will be a great day for us. It'll be a great day. Well, today it's on prayer. And, and I chose a passage uh, on prayer. Um, it's a sweet passage. Most of you know it. I'm sure some of you have memorized it. But it really comes, it, it comes at the end of Philippians. Paul loves this church. He's giving them exhortations. He's giving them kind of a commands. He's, he's trying to tell them, this is what you need to do so that you finish well. Uh, this is like Paul's vision statement is what it is. You know, churches have these great vision statements. This is Paul's vision statement for the church. But, but I, I want you to hear them as a loving pastor. I want you to hear them as a loving servant of God. Because earlier, Paul, in chapter one, he says this. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Wouldn't that be sweet to have a friend that every time he thinks about us, he doesn't say ugh, he thanks God for us. Or he says in verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. To yearn for them. He says in chapter 4, right before our passage, My brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. You, you hear this language of love that, that he wants them to get this. These exhortations. Listen, I'm closing my letter. These are the things I want you to remember. And we're going to see three things in the passage. I'm going to just touch briefly on the first two and then, then sit on the third one for a while. Uh, but, but the first one you see right there in verse 4, that, that let your hearts be full of joy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Always rejoice. That's what he's saying. Let your hearts be full of joy. This is really fundamental to the Christian faith, 
that we are to be a joy-filled people. Oftentimes, the church is often kind of characterized as a somber, morose, over-serious people. And there is a place for seriousness, no doubt, uh, but, but there's a joy that is to occupy the hearts of the believer. And Now, it's not a joy like the world. It's not a giddiness. It's not a merriment. It's not driven by circumstances. There is a, there is a, a profound joy that's in the Lord. In other words, that's the object of our joy. This idea that God is full of grace and mercy, that God is good, that God is kind to us, that God has given us a son. He didn't spare the son. The son humbled himself, uh, even to the point of hanging on a cross that we might be reconciled to himself. And not only has the Father exercised goodness in giving the Son, he's giving us the Spirit. We have a foretaste of heaven as the Spirit dwells within us, confirming to us that we're, that we're children of God. In other words, rejoicing in the Lord is rejoicing in the gospel. It's rejoicing in the fact that God has done everything necessary to take us broken, sinful people and to reconcile himself to himself forever forever so that death is only a door to him it's not a threat it's not an end so we can rejoice in the lord he says but you notice he says it twice rejoice in the lord again i say rejoice we need to be repeat we need to be reminded we we need instructions repeated to us any good parent knows when they're trying to train their child to say thank you they have to repeat it about a thousand times until it becomes that natural reflux that they begin to express appreciation when kindness is offered to them, he repeats it for us. He's saying, rejoice. Now, these are people who are struggling. He's saying, rejoice. Again, let me repeat to you, we need to rejoice in the Lord. And notice that he conditions this call to rejoice by saying, rejoice always, always, even in trials, even in hardships. You can rejoice now remember, they were suffering from the Roman government. I'll talk about that in a minute. But you see it at the end of chapter 1, how they are being pressed down. You see it in chapter 4 when he has to tell them, stand firm. You, know, you usually call that to people when they're struggling. And, and, and Paul's saying rejoice. Now Paul's not in some ivory tower kind of writing these love letters to this church as they're suffering, and he's in the comfort of some distant city. No, this is a prison letter. Paul's in prison. He's in a Roman prison, most likely shackled to the floor. He's in a Roman prison with deplorable conditions. And he is not only rejoicing, he's calling them to rejoice. He's rejoicing in the Lord. Now, if you're here today and you're visiting, you're not a, perhaps you're not a Christian, this seems patently absurd at one level. It seems more like, you know, Christian doing their mental gymnastics, sticking their heads in the sand. Hey, just say it looks nice, and, and it'll be nice. I don't think that's the case at all. I think he genuinely means it. Because he's saying rejoice in the Lord. What he's saying is this. He knows that the sufferings of this world are temporal. But what God has achieved for the Christian is eternal, forever that this world which is bringing about the problems over which we groan, Jesus has conquered the world. He's transformed the world. He's changed it. See, the Christian knows that the present sufferings of this life are not to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. 
You know, if you think about, so the letter of Hebrews was written to Christians kind of spread across the Mediterranean basin. And there were these Christians who were actually suffering while ministering to other Christians in prison. In fact, they had many of their things taken because they were associated with these Christians in prison. So the writer of Hebrews says, for you had compassion on those in prison. He's speaking to the church. He said, and you joyfully, joyfully, they were rejoicing, over, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. They were rejoicing over having their retirements cleaned out because they knew they had something better, far better, and, and far longer lasting than any temporal benefit. So when he says rejoice in the Lord always, he means it. We can rejoice in the Lord because of what we have. What we have, we know, the, the Christian knows the end of the story. You know what is coming to you. A, a, a reunion of reunions where you will see God face to face and he will be a father to you. So this is a call, Paul's saying, kind of the last exhortation, rejoice in the Lord always. Will you rejoice this year? We don't know what 2019 holds for you. It, it, it could be a, a sweet year. Maybe 2018, maybe leaving this year for you is like the parting of an old friend. Maybe it was a sweet year. Maybe it was like a train wreck. You just want to get away from it as fast as you can. We don't know what 19 holds, but will you rejoice with him? Will you rejoice in the Lord? That's the call. The call is now to prepare to rejoice in the Lord. Now, you know, the Mercer home, at least, has had a bumpy 18, um, to say the least. But in fact, I can say it to you this way. Um, when all of your children and you, everybody meets their medical deductibles, you know it's been a kind of a tough year. And, and, and that's the least of the issue, is the medical deductibles. It has been uh, a challenge to rejoice in the Lord always. It, it has. It, it has pushed us. We've, we've uh, struggled. We've wept, grown frustrated at the plan, uh, but, but been thankful. Have pushed ourselves to remember, to rejoice in the Lord is what we're rejoicing over encouraging one another. You have been a great boon to us to rejoice in the Lord. I mean, you, the church, and this really is a word to the church here. You know, Paul's writing to everybody saying, we all need to rejoice in the Lord. And by the way, we all have to help each other rejoice in the Lord. And many of you have. To fight, to believe, yes, God is yet better than the temporal trouble we currently have. And I can stand up here and affirm to you that he is. That the reality of God and his goodness is greater than the sufferings of this present world. So the call is to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let us be a people this year who are found not, not in a superficial praise the Lord when things go bad. Sometimes I do that. It can be really a form of cursing. You know, you hit your thumb with a hammer. Praise the Lord, you know. It's, I don't know what that is, actually. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about recognizing the reality of life and yet praising and rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of trial. 
So that's the first exhortation he gives us. The second exhortation he gives us, we're not yet at prayer, we're just in verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, let me clean this up a little bit. Reasonableness simply means gentleness. It means graciousness. It means giving way. It means yielding to another. It's a peaceable conduct. And he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I think what he's saying there is both in and outside the church. He's not saying put on a show when you need to. He's speaking about the character that we have. Let your reasonableness be known. How do people know your reasonableness other than their experiencing of life with you, particularly in conflict? Are you reasonable to people in the midst of conflict? Are you charitable to them in regard of their failings? When you struggle with an individual, do you take the whole story of their life and set the trouble you have with them in the context of their greater struggles? Or do you just look at the event itself and respond? You know, it's really a word for the Christian here uh, that you are called here to fight the tendency to want to respond back to people in like measure as they have responded to you. The person that you're... Who are you thinking about, actually, as I'm speaking? Is there a name that pops into your head right now that you would consider perhaps unreasonable and that makes you unreasonable? Maybe your spouse, by the way. But, but who is the person that you have most trouble with oftentimes? Being gentle and being considerate and gracious and yielding to. Who is that person? The call is that Paul's saying, your gentleness, your graciousness, that mark of the gospel is to be made known. People are to experience it as they deal with you. So you can, you know, it's kind of self-evident that our, our sarcastic comments, our critical speech, our harsh words, uh, they act with a corrosive effect on the nature of the relationships that you have. But gentleness and yieldedness and graciousness it's like water to a dry plant. It just gives life. A gentle answer turns away wrath. How? Are you gentle with people? Uh, the way you conduct yourselves on social media, would you be known as gentle? It doesn't mean you agree with everything people say, and it doesn't mean you have to agree. But do you, are you letting your gentleness be made known to everyone? on the posts that you make, the disagreements that you have. That, that's what Paul, think about it. Paul's a great apostle. He's languishing in prison. He doesn't know just yet that he will survive this incarceration. And he's saying, the last word, can you imagine if, if you go to your friend and he's there, maybe with months to live, and he wants to give you a word of encouragement, he says, be gentle with people. You have the gospel. You can rejoice in the Lord always. Be gentle with people. That's what Paul's saying to us. So first, let your hearts be full of joy. Secondly, let your gentleness be known. This may be a time for you to repent to someone today or tomorrow. As you look back at the past week, you've come through the holidays, you've had family in play. That is just a very fertile ground for all kinds of stuff to come up. And, and maybe you need to go back and say, you know what, I really wasn't gentle with the way I responded to you. And I've been 
convicted by the gentleness of God in my life over my sin, and, and I, I'm sorry. It, it would be a good time to repent and to seek forgiveness if, you've been, if you haven't been reasonable with those people that you deem unreasonable. Uh, the third thing that Paul says here is found in, in verse uh, 5b all the way through 7, which is, let your requests be made known to God. This is the third instruction he gives us, but it's where I want to kind of spend just a few extra minutes. Let your requests be made known to God. Paul is calling for the church. The vision of the church is that we are a people who pray, and we are called to pray corporately. Again, let me remind you, we tend to be these pietists, you know, these people who look at Scripture always in an individualized way. These letters in the New Testament were written to a group of people, a gathered group of people who would have come together. They didn't get this and go to the copy machine and send it out or digitize it and send it to... They sat and read it together. So it was a corporate letter. It was coming to all of us. He's saying, you all, or let me rephrase that, y'all should be gentle with people. Y'all ought to let your hearts rejoice and y'all ought to pray together. You ought to pray together. But notice how it's set. Notice what the contrast is. He says there in, in um, what is it? It's 5B. He says, uh, sorry, 6. He says, don't be anxious about anything. He first says, don't be anxious about anything. Now, this seems kind of crazy as well. Um, I don't think, let me just make sure we understand it. <clears throat> I don't think he's talking about those moments of fright that happen when there's a, you know, you just miss being T-boned, you know, and your heart starts racing. I don't think he's talking about that. I don't think he's talking about a panic attack that some people have. They, they just all of a sudden get immediately rattled over a certain situation. I don't think he's talking about being fearful or being concerned over things. I think he's talking about this long-standing worry over something, this kind of continual sense of, of dread and foreboding over some issue. And the reason I say that is because he knows that they were facing real threats. The, the Philippians, these uh, saints in Philippi, uh, they faced a heavy hand from the Roman government there. Uh, they also faced uh, the heaviness of the population, the pagan population. They were not open to these Christians. These Christians were exclusivists. They only believed that Jesus Christ was the way to salvation. And everybody else thought, no, 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 he's not the only way. And so there was conflict with the culture. Oh, but there's also conflict in the churches, as, as we're going to, as, as um, right in chapter 4, verse 2, when Paul talks about being reasonable, I think he had in mind, Odia and Syntyche, in, in verses 2 and 3, Paul the apostle says, agree in the Lord. In other words, the, the great apostle Paul has to bring his apostolic authority and say, hey, ladies, Unlock your horns from each other. The battle outside is greater than the conflict you have inside. So, so, so they had conflict within the church. But I think there were just the general uncertainties of a pre-industrial life. You know, if you think about it, you know, you have electricity, you have refrigerators, you've got food stored, you've got retirement accounts. You have a lot of these things we all do in life to take away some of the uncertainty of life. I don't want to let you think that you can trust in those things. But, but there are certain things with this industrial age that we have that make life significantly easier. They didn't have those things. And so they did have some legitimate threats that they were facing. But he says, don't be anxious about those things. Don't worry about those things. I think he's just taking a page 
and of Jesus' playbook when Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, or what you're going to wear. Your Heavenly Father knows you need these things. What are you most worried about for 2019? Are you worried about your health? It deteriorating? Are you worried about your children? The direction that they're on? Are you worried about your own health? Are you worried about relational dysfunction that you're in the middle of? Are you worried about your job? Are you worried about your marriage? What are you most worried about? What occupies that top shelf space in your mind? Where, where, where when you have a moment without you know, when you're not thinking directly on a specific issue that your mind kind of goes there. What about this? And how am I going to handle this? What do you worry about most? Because what Paul is saying is that those things that cause worry, he says we're to pray about those things. We're to replace the anxiety with peace through the practice of prayer. We're to cast our cares upon God. In other words, prayer is a gift to you by God whereby you can appeal to him for mercy and grace. So your worries are replaced with peace. You know, John Calvin, the reformer in the 16th century, says, we are not made of iron so as to not be shaken by temptations. But this is our consolation. This is our solace to deposit, to disburden to the bosom of God everything that harasses us. Now, you know how he started out this idea of praying. He says, the Lord's at hand. The Lord's at hand. What's he mean by that? Well, I think he probably means one of two things, or both. The Lord's at hand, that means that, that God is near. And the nearness of God was always to assure the people of God. It could also mean that he can return at any time. And that, too, is to provide us a sense of well-being, of protection, of comfort. The Lord's at hand. He says, you can pray to God. The Lord being at hand isn't presumption to not pray. It's fuel to pray. Because he's at hand, God, move quickly on our behalf over this issue. So what, what he's saying here is present your request to God. Even as those anxious, worrisome thoughts come in, you are a people who return and cast your cares upon God. Move back to God. Pray to him. See, worry erodes your trust in God. When we worry, it's an evidence that we're not considering the power and the presence of God in your life. You're acting as an atheist. He's not there. I'm on my own. I'm alone. Of course I'm worried. He says, no, I'm there. I'm at hand. I'm right before you. It's calling for us to trust that his very presence is sufficient for you in the midst of the greatest struggle you may hit in 19. And that's why he says, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, it goes beyond human reason, you cannot trace it out. You know it when it's there, but you don't know how it's there. The peace of God will transcend all understanding, and it will guard your heart and mind in Christ. Now, as I said, the town of Philippi, it was a Roman garrison. It was a fortress. It was a, they stationed large groups and large numbers of Roman troops there, they knew full well what it meant to see a guard, a well-trained, well-equipped, well-conditioned, well-armed guard, guard. And he's saying, the peace of God will guard your hearts. Christ himself, as the Prince of Peace, will stand century.
over your heart so that you don't fall into disbelief or despair or disappointment for long. He's going to guard your heart. <clears throat> this is really uh, why we want to call the church to pray, to pray and fast. Uh, this peace is unfathomable. Many of you saints know it. You know that you've been in precarious situations and you have felt a peace in your life that you cannot explain. You cannot tease it out. You have a comfort in the midst of great chaos. That's what he's speaking about here. It's something you have to experience. And every Christian will experience at one point in time. You know, when um, let me give you an example from my life, if I could. So uh, on, on May 3, remember how a few weeks before, I said, hey, folks, you're one phone call away from your life changing. And, uh, and of course, the Lord revealed that to be true through our life. And on May 3rd, got the note that Anna Caroline had, Anna Caroline, our granddaughter, uh, Carol would be here, but she's got the flu. Uh, but we're rejoicing in the Lord always. I don't know that she was, and I didn't mention it to her just this morning as I left, but on May 3rd, we got the call, and I, we knew, I knew, we weren't, we're not strong people. We're, I'm a weak-kneed person, I can admit that to you. And I knew we had to pray. And uh, so I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to take one psalm a day. I'm going to take one psalm, and I'm going to, I'll write out the contents of the psalm, and I'm going to pray it. And I'll write out more of the psalm, and I'll pray it. And so every day, the 150 psalms, I finished them, going back through them. But every day, I would read one psalm. And it was a time of, of great peace. Uh, even starting with Psalm 1. Let me give you an example of what I would do. And Psalm 123, for example, became a real sweet he says, he says, to you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. And then I just stop. And I think about God is enthroned in the heavens. And it is to him that I look. The chaos of cancer, I don't look at. I'm looking at him who's enthroned in the heavens. And the psalmist says, behold, as the eyes of the servant looks to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. And there would be a sense of peace and well-being that would come in the midst of great uncertainty, of which there still is. He's enthroned in the heavens. Or Psalm 146. I would read, and I'd write this down, and then I'd pray it. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and who keeps faith forever. I needed that. Because I wondered... Will our faith hold? But no, he'll, he'll keep my faith forever. Who executes justice for the oppressed. He even gives food to the hungry. God will care for us. Every day, applying a psalm. It was like 
a balm. It was like ointment on a wound. Just reminding us of these truths. God will guard our hearts in the midst of these anxious times. So what we want to do as a church is take Paul's vision as our vision, that we want to rejoice in the Lord always, that we, we want to let our hearts be full of joy, we want to let our reasonableness, our reasonableness be known to all men, and we want to lift and to present our request to God. So what we're going to be doing is just doing that. We're going to be praying together as a church, not just for the anxious things, not just for the anxious things, but for all things. We want our church to move in holiness. Uh, we want to have a greater impact on the world. We want your marriages stronger. <clears throat> you know, for many of you, I pray for marriages almost every day in this church. I want us all praying for marriages. Uh, that husbands and wives are praying together every day. They're joining hands. They're on their knees. They're praying. That parenting is done with grace in, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That we're striving towards holiness that we really are fighting sin, that we're not just talking about it, but we're actually doing it, <clears throat> that, that we have a love for God's word, that we want to read his word, that we want to memorize it, meditate on it, find hope in it, that we do want to grow to love his return, even if your life is going sweet right now. And I pray it would continue, but it wouldn't be as sweet as the life that he will give you when you see him face to face. That we begin to move in greater earnest that his name would be made known among those who don't know him. That's important, that we're praying for more people from this church will go into missions, but not just global missions, local stuff, stuff right here, that, that we would be a people really on the move for the glory of God. I don't think I can persuade, manipulate, challenge, or convince you of doing that. That's why we're going to pray, and we're going to fast toward that end. But, but there's five warnings I want to give you to prayer. Just five, they're, they're speed bumps. Some of them can be roadblocks if you're not careful. But, but five cautions regarding this call to prayer. Uh, and, and the first one is this. I would ask that, that you don't succumb to having your prayers too narrow, too narrow. Uh, many of our prayers are usually about us or our needs. That's appropriate. Read the Psalms. Uh, many individual prayers in there. Uh, but oftentimes that's where they stay. You don't see that pattern in the New Testament. You see a much broader approach to prayer. You know, for example, in the book of Acts, all the prayers that you see, or most of them, are on the gathered community. And even when Paul prays or asks for prayer, he asks for the corporate community to do it. Uh, you see all of Paul's prayers in the various letters to these different churches in, the, in Asia Minor. We're going to study some of them this year. Uh, he's, he's instructing them, here's how you pray together. So, so broaden your prayers. Y you know, Jesus said the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God, as uh, to love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So the way in which you love your neighbor is really a measurement as to how you love God. And one way to love your neighbor is to pray for them. How often do we pray for one another? How often do we pray for each other's spiritual growth? How often do we pray for the difficult challenges? I know many of you do, so I'm not implying that we don't, but I want to encourage more of it. I want us to be like Epaphras. Epaphras is a, is a man's name. He was a member of the church at Colossae, and uh, Paul 
kind of singled him out in his letter to the Colossians. And he said this in chapter 4. He said, Epaphras, who is one of you, he's one of you, he's one of your own, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That word struggling is the same Greek word that is used to describe Jesus struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's following his master. He's struggling on their behalf. He's not praying over his own sicknesses and his own struggles and his own future and his own children. He's praying on behalf of the church. It says, he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Can you imagine if you are a friend to somebody like this? Well, you're really struggling. I mean, each morning you get up and you just spend five or ten minutes on one or two or three people and you struggle, you agonize with God. That's the transliteration of the Greek word. You agonize with God. God, make bring maturity into this man's life. Uh, bring greater love for your word into, into my husband or, or someone else in the church. That you're agonizing with God over the spiritual development of those around you, those members of your church. I bet you it'll be a different year. I bet you next year when I ask you, do you love God more? I bet we will. I bet everybody should stand up and say, absolutely we love God more. Because he will answer his prayers. You do not have, because you do not ask. But we're going to ask this year. So that's the first order. Don't make your prayers too narrow. And then secondly, I would say, that we don't want to make our prayers too, uh, um, too independent. In other words, uh, often our prayers are marked by, um, well, these things I can handle, but, but these things I, I can't. In other words, our, our prayers are birthed out of the sense of sufficiency. So we'll pray when someone is on a respirator or someone is uh, facing cancer, um, but we don't pray over our own tendency to gossip or, or get angry or lose our cool or spark, speak with sarcasm. Uh, we don't usually pray on some of those things. They, well, we can manage those. But notice in the text, it says, in everything by prayer and supplication, present your request to God. I mean, what are those things that you don't pray for? You know, we want to pray for all the things, not just the big things. We you know, the, the one evidence of why don't people pray, uh, the number one reason would be we don't feel dependent. That's why when someone gets put on a ventilator, we start praying. We know, shh, this is, we're, in, we're in deep water now, and, and it's no problem to pray. There's no atheists in foxholes. Why? They know they're out of their league. But so much of our life we live as if we feel like, no, I, I got this down. You don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring to you. So if you feel so confident in it, just be reminded, you don't even know what tomorrow holds for you. Not one person in this room knows what tomorrow will bring. So it causes a sense of dependence, not independence. And that dependence drives us, thankfully, to God in prayer. And, and, then, and then I would say, uh, thirdly, another hurdle is to, uh, oftentimes we struggle in prayer because we have too much ingratitude. Too much ingratitude. What do I mean by that? Well, notice what Paul says there in verse 6 when he says, you know, that you are to uh, not be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer 
and supplication with thanksgiving. We want to be thankful in our prayers. We want to remind ourselves of all that God has done. Why? Because it creates within us a confidence of this is what God's already done. You know, think upon not just the good things in your life that he has brought, but think about the nature of the cross, the atonement, his saving work. By the way, that is enabling us to even pray. So if he hadn't have done that work, we wouldn't be praying in the first place because we couldn't appeal to God. So, so pray with thanksgiving. This, this gives us a sense of, yes, God, you've done all these things, and it emboldens me to ask for more. So we want to pray with thanksgiving. God, thank you. And, and we were able to. God, thank you for what you have done for us, even in the midst of tragedy and trial. I would say another, another threat to prayer is just us having low expectations on God. Uh, we, 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 have, we lack faith. We have too much disbelief. Prayer dies when we have a poor assessment of God. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was that British pastor of the 20th century, and he says, I don't believe in prayer. He says, I believe in God, therefore I pray. You know, sometimes how we tend to be more faith-filled as we get more people praying, it's not as if God is generating confidence. It's the numerous people that we have praying. Now, I love getting a lot of people praying for, for things. It collects people together. It draws us together as a body. We unite together around our need for God. I'm all about getting a lot of people to pray. I just don't want my confidence to be in the number of people praying rather than the God to whom I pray. And, and, and so... And so a poor assessment of God. Do you expect God to move? I have to challenge myself on this all the time. A lot of times I'm praying, I'm like, I, I don't know if he's going to move. And, and then after a pen, I say, God, forgive me for that. You have not because you ask not. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Those are the words of Jesus. In Luke 18, he, he encourages about this woman in the parable that goes to the unjust judge, and she keeps going and going and going. Jesus tells us why he tells us the parable. He says, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in prayer. Believe in God, he says. And then the last stumbling block is, is, is too often our prayers are too short-sighted. They're too local. They're too low. What do I mean by this? Well, David Wells, a former professor of mine, he says that prayer is actually like rebellion. A prayer is coming against the evilness of the world. That prayer is where we take up arms, but not weapons. Our weapons are spiritual. They're not carnal. We do engage in battle, but we engage in battle through prayer. We look at this world, and for us in America, the world is kind of genteel and kind of sweet to us. Not so for much of the world and for most of the history. And so prayer is to be an onslaught against the world which stands in antithesis to God. It's rebellion against the world. That's what prayer is. It is calling against. So when we pray, we have missionaries in foreign countries uh, that are under threat. We pray against that. That's, that's evil. Atheism against God. And so prayer is rebellion against the forces with which we live. David Wells says it this way. He says, prayer is making war with the world in its fallenness. 
Prayer is a declaration that evil is the antithesis of God. It's an expression of hope that life can be otherwise and ought to be otherwise. So we see the things in society, and we don't just say, boy, it's going, it's going from good to bad. No, we, we say, no, 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 we're going to pray against this. We're going to pray for God's kingdom to come in power. So our prayers are often too short-sighted. We just want, you know, Aunt Betty healed. I want to pray for Aunt Betty, by the way. If I'm ever Aunt Betty, pray for me. But we want to lift it off of there and say, God, bring about reform in our government. Bring about reform in our society. Bring about reform in our schools. You know, that we're praying against these, these structural evils and these, these structures that are just through and through with no sense of God or his glory. So we have three encouragements here that we are to, we are to let our hearts be full of joy, we are to, uh, to let our gentleness be known to all, and we're to let uh, our, our requests, our petitions, our prayers, our thanksgiving be presented and be made known to God. Uh, so this week is on prayer. Uh, we will send you digitized or, or links for Bible reading for this year. We would encourage that. We will have hard copies of various Bible reading plans on the table out in the foyer uh, next week. I was reminded of that, thankfully. And, uh, and then next week we'll hit on fasting. Uh, so be prepared for that and begin praying now. We want to begin praying for the church. Now, the first day of corporate prayer and fasting uh, will be the second Tuesday of this month. So it's going to be uh, the 6th, the 7th, the 8th, the I think it's the 9th that will be, no, the 8th. The 8th will be a day and we'll give direction both with articles uh, and also direction of how we're going to corporately, how we're going to pray together. Just like John led us. You know, John led us in prayer and we were joining with him. We were agreeing with him. Together we're corporately praying. That's what we're going to do and fasting. So let's take a minute now and ask God for grace that this year would be different in this way and that we might honor him as such. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.